God bless you, and it's so good to be back again with you today. Thank you so much for coming. We realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there. So we bring the service to you, wherever you are. And we hope you'll be encouraged today as you discover God's peace and His promises for your life. Would you open in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 11? That's where we're going to be today. And we'll also show those verses up here in the video for you, just to make it easier for you to follow along. I'd like to talk to you today about choosing faith. You know, we all have situations in life when we have to pause for a bit. We have to step back and think about what to do, how you're going to navigate that situation, decide what you're going to do, where you're going to go. A new job you're being offered wants you to relocate to another city. Do you fix that expensive problem with your existing car? Or do you try somehow to get another one? What are you going to do about that family crisis you're facing? Then there's also moments where really big decisions come along in life. Moments when you're looking at changing the very direction of life itself. And each day in various ways, you're faced with figuring out how you're going to fix the problems and somehow keep life in order at the same time. But before you even get to that point, there's an even bigger decision you have to make. Whether you know it or not, that bigger decision is who is going to take care of your problem. You say, well, I don't think about that. Well, that's exactly my point today. You should be thinking about it because instead of letting yourself take care of that problem, you should be trusting God for what you're facing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That means that you have a new life, but it also means that you should have a new way of looking at life. You see, all the things have become new. That's what it said, right? So instead of looking at things the same old way that you used to, fixing problems in your own strength, your own plans, in this new life, you'll be overcoming trials by trusting God instead. He'll be the problem solver. He'll be the provider. He'll be the protector. He'll guide you. He'll comfort you. He'll bring the victory over trials and cause you to soar right over those obstacles. But some people find it difficult to let go of control and to trust God instead. Now, it's easy to recognize when God is calling you, but the question is, do you answer the call? Do you answer the call to trust Him instead? Each time you see an opportunity step out of the old life and step in the new life. You pause for a bit, think it over. You ask yourself, now what's the risk of giving all my cares to God instead of handling things myself? You wonder, how much should I rely on myself and how much should I rely on God? Each path you choose in life is preceded by this thought, this decision. You make the choice. You make a decision to go ahead in faith and trust God or you continue trusting yourself in fear that you may be wrong, that you miss something somewhere along the way and your plans might not work. You weigh losing control with losing your worry and giving your cares to God. You consciously decide every time whether you're going to trust your own analysis or you'll defer to God's wisdom. Whichever way you end up going, the choice is going to be yours. Do you choose fear or do you choose faith?
In our scripture passage today, we're given the stories of people, ordinary people like you, like me, who face their challenges by hoping and having faith in God. Though they were in dark situations, they confronted the darkness with the light of God's promises and His presence. And when all hope looked to be gone and fear wanted them to give up, they chose faith in God instead. The chapter today tells their stories. Let's look at it together. Beginning in verse 17 and all the way to verse 40, we're just going to read it all together and then we'll talk about it. It says in verse 17, Hebrews 11, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Yitzchak, his son. He who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Yitzchak your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense, by faith Yitzchak blessed Yaakov and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Yaakov, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Yosef, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith, Moshe, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Verse 24 continues, By faith, Moshe, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Verse 27 then says, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured his seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should also touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as on dry ground, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot, Rahab, did not perish with those who didn't believe, because she received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say, the writers of Hebrews says, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and also David and Shmuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness they were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the enemies, Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. Verse 37 continues, And they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, the promise that we recognize today in the Messiah. You see, they were looking forward to the Messiah and believed on Him. We look back to Him and believe on Him. 
Then verse 40 finally wraps it up. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. In other words, the Old Testament, the Tanakh, and the New Testament, our Brita Chadashah, work together. Now, as we think about these verses that we just read, we might notice that there's some common threads that run through this chapter as it talks about these people who are the heroes of faith and what we call the Hall of Fame of Faith, or the Hall of Faith. These were people that we talked about in these verses, and they came from all different kinds of backgrounds. They faced different situations, as we just read, and you know some of their stories from the Bible. Some people saw God's hand move quickly in a very miraculous way, and others saw God move more slowly, still in a miraculous way. In every situation, it seems that the people faced trials that tried their faith, but ultimately those trials grew their faith and stretched their faith. And they grew in God because of that. But remember, these were ordinary people just like you. They had times in life when they weren't the best examples of believers, though. Oh, yeah. They were liars. Some were idolaters. Some were murderers. David, remember David the king, sent that man out to be killed on the front lines of battle so that David could have his wife. And Ahab, I mean Rahab, was that prostitute that we were reading about today. They weren't the best examples, but God used them, and they were men and women of faith. So here they are in the Hall of Fame for faith in God. And here's God using their lives to teach us about godliness and faith. And do we need this lesson? Oh, yes, we do. Doesn't that give you hope? When you see the kinds of people that God can use, doesn't that give you hope? That there's some things that all of these Hall of Famers have in common. They're just regular people. And they also had some other things in common. Each of these people, when they faced the impossible situations, they put their cares in God's hands. And He delivered them. And in their example, countless multitudes of others through the centuries, billions of people who have read the pages of the Bible have been inspired to also trust in God and to choose faith. The Bible is filled with stories of people who trusted God in times of severe trials. When things got rough, when the situation looked impossible, they turned to God for help. They chose faith. I remember the story in the Bible of Jonathan and his young armor bearer. That's the way it was when these two Israeli young men thwarted an invasion by over 100,000 enemy soldiers, just the two of them and God. Israel's tiny army only had about 2,000 people in it in that time. And the soldiers in the army had heard that the size of the enemy army was well over 100,000 people. Well, when they heard that, 1,400 of the 2,000 that belonged to Israel left and ran to the mountains, and they hid up in the rocks and the caves. And all that was left was 600 Israelis against over 100,000 Philistine soldiers. Now, doesn't that sound too good? No, I don't think so. That sounds pretty bad. 600 people against over 100,000. But consider this. Out of the 600 Israelis in the army, only two even had a sword or a spear. 
Did you hear me just now? I said only two out of the 600 Israelis in their army even had a sword or a spear. The rest of the men were unarmed. That's because the Philistines that ruled that country, that, that territory at that time would come in there and they would not allow a blacksmith to set up in the land. In other words, there was no one who could work with steel. There was no one who could work with iron. They didn't have a blacksmith in the land. That way, the Israelis could never make swords or spears for their warriors. But that didn't stop two young men, Jonathan and his armor bearer. If you turn over to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 13 for a moment, we'll see. It says there in 1 Samuel 13 verse 5, Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. 30,000 chariots, and those would plow right through entire lines of the army. It wouldn't even slow them down at all. Those were armored chariots. They couldn't be hurt or destroyed, especially by an army with no swords and no spears. And then they had 6,000 men on horseback. And then foot soldiers that all had swords and spears, foot soldiers as the sands on the seashore. And these came against Israel, and they encamped at Michmash to the east of Beit Evan. Now, 1 Samuel 14, if you just flip over a page or chapter to 1 Samuel 14, look at verse 6. It says, Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, to keep in mind, Jonathan is King Saul's son. He's just a young man. And here's this young man who also carries Jonathan's armor around. And Jonathan says to his armor bearer, Come on over. Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised soldiers, you see. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by few or by many. Did you read what Jonathan says? That's a very wise young man right there. He says, let's go on over there. It may be that God will work for us. The Lord will work for us. Because nothing restrains, nothing slows the Lord down from saving. Whether we have a lot of soldiers or we have few soldiers, it doesn't matter because the power and the strength, the might is from Almighty God. He says, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. When you face problems, do you take that kind of an attitude? Do you look at your problems and go, you know, Lord, this seems like such a big problem, but it's not a big problem for you. It's a big problem for me, but you are my Lord, so I give my problem to you. You made the universe. I don't need to worry about this problem, no matter how big it seems to me. So Jonathan said this to his young armor bearer. And then 1 Samuel 14, verse 14 says that first slaughter, which Jonathan made with his armor bearer, and they took about 20 men within a half an acre of land. Here's what happened. They had made a plan. Jonathan and his armor bearer said, look, here's what we'll do. We'll make ourselves visible to the Philistines. And if they say, stay right there and we'll come up to you, then we'll know that the Lord is not going to win this battle for us. He's not going to fight this battle for us. But if they say, come on down that we may see you, then we will know that the Lord has given them into our hands. 
That was their plan that Jonathan and this young armor bearer had made. And sure enough, they made themselves visible and the Philistines saw them and they said, come on down that we may see you. And Jonathan looked over at the armor bearer and said, see, God has given the battle to us. Now that is faith. Two young men going into the camp of over 100,000 Philistine soldiers, all armed, going into the camp, didn't slow them down. When they got to the first line of Philistine soldiers, they engaged them in battle, and within a half an acre of land, God gave them 20 men that fell at their hand. These two young men took out 20 men, and then it says in verse 15, in 1 Samuel 14, it says, And then there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked, and there was a very great trembling. Now the watchman of Saul in Gebeah and Benjamin looked, and there was a multitude melting away, and they were running here and running there, and they saw all this commotion, all this confusion, Saul, waiting back there with those 600 men who were probably very afraid of trying to go against 100,000 Philistine soldiers. And Jonathan and his young armor bearer went over there, and they killed 20 when they first started the battle. But then God saw their faith in coming to against 100,000. And then God rose up, and He started taking the battle and then confusion came to the whole camp. And there was a great earthquake that was quaking under the Philistine soldiers. And they were confused and they didn't know what to think. They were shaking around and the whole land was shaking violently. And the Philistine soldiers were confused and they didn't know any longer who the enemy was. And so they started turning on their own soldiers, their own Philistine soldiers, fighting against other Philistine soldiers. That's how confused they were because God had confused their minds. And then they became so panicked, thinking that this other huge army had somehow invaded their camp and was now killing them, that they became confused and started running every which way just to get away. And Saul's up there waiting with his 600 men. That's all he had left. And he didn't know what to do. He's looking out there and he hasn't even done anything yet. And he's one of the only two people in the Israeli army that has a spear and a sword. He has a sword and a spear and Jonathan had a sword and a spear. None of the other 600 men in the Israeli army had one because they didn't have any swords and spears that were available for the Israeli army because of no blacksmiths in the land, remember? So now Saul looks out and he sees the Philistine army and it looks like they're just fading away, melting away is what that verse in verse 16 of 1 Samuel 14 said. And they were going here and there, they were running away. And Saul, I don't know what's going on, but it looks like there's a battle going on. The Philistines are running away. Let's go down there and fight. And so then those men joined the battle. By the way, those 1,400, those 1,400 men who had left the army, remember it was 2,000 earlier, and then 1,400 left running afraid up into the mountains to hide behind the rocks and hide in caves. They also saw what was going on. They said, I don't understand it, what's going on. But somehow the Philistines are running. 
they're being defeated. I don't know how. Let's go down there and join the battle against the Philistines. So they joined, and all of the 600 with Saul joined. And not only that, but the Bible says that other Israelis who lived in that area heard this great battle cry and saw that the Philistines were running, and they joined the battle. You see, when people see someone trusting God and stepping out in faith, like the other people saw Jonathan and his armor-bearer, then other people are also inspired to trust the Lord too. Will you be one of the ones that leads the way, trusting God and having faith in Him? Will you choose faith and trust in God? Will you be the one who inspires others to trust the Lord God Almighty? Will you be the one to choose faith? You could go through life choosing to play it safe, never venturing beyond the familiar, never experiencing the amazing journey that God's prepared for you, or you could choose faith. That's the way it was with another young boy whom you know very well, David HaMelech, David the king, when he was just a young shepherd boy. In a time of war, and he was there at the battle, but he wasn't one of the soldiers, this enemy came upon them, and they sent out this great warrior named Goliath. Now, Goliath was huge. He was a giant. But not only was he a true giant, but his weapons were massive. The shield that he carried was impenetrable. Warrior after warrior on the Israeli army trembled at the sight of Goliath. But a little shepherd boy saw things differently. He saw a giant. Of course he did. But he had also spent long, dark nights out there tending those sheep that God had given him, out under the innumerable stars of heaven, looking up in awe of the power of the Almighty God. So David went forth to meet the giant warrior, the little shepherd boy facing that battle-hardened warrior, that giant with a giant spear, a giant sword, a giant shield and armor versus the little shepherd boy with only a small slingshot and a handful of stones. And while the warriors of Israel hid in fear, David went forth claiming that God was enough and that he didn't have to worry about having other soldiers with him because when God is with you, that's a majority and you're going to be okay. David went forth and that the Lord would give him the victory. That's what he was thinking. While others chose fear, you see, David chose faith. You know the story well. God was with David. Goliath was defeated. And the story about Jonathan and his armor bearer the same way. Thousands of others were inspired, all because a young shepherd boy showed them how to choose faith. You know, another point to remember in this chapter about faith is to choose a relationship with God instead of a formula. Here's what I mean. Many people know that faith is a good thing to have, but they're not sure what they have to do to have faith. Well, the Bible says that by grace you're saved through faith, and that's not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But we always try to work faith up. We try to say, okay, well, maybe if I say these words, or maybe if I say these words, and I say it this way, maybe if I kneel on the ground, or maybe if I stand with my hands raised, or maybe if I face Jerusalem with my eyes closed, or no, looking up with my eyes open, and you try to think about all these formulas 
to how you can make God work. You know, I can't tell you how faith works. I can't tell you the words to say when you pray. I can't tell you how long to pray or how many times to ask for something. But I can tell you this, faith doesn't come from a formula. You can't put God in a box. He'll surprise you every time with the answers to your prayers. He'll break out of that box. But you can be inspired as you think about His ways, as you remember the miracles He's done for you in past trials and the prayers that He's answered before. Faith comes from seeking Him in His Word. You can see a black and white picture of the Lord in the words of the Bible, printed on the pages of your Bible. It clearly shows what His heart is like. Faith comes from remembering the times He showed you mercy, the times that He brought you through those valleys, the days when you were, had to be carried by Him because you were too weak to continue in your own strength. Faith is given in mercy by the hand of God as you humble yourself in His presence. As you behold His glory, you become inspired of what He can do. And having nothing else but faith in Him is a very good place to be. He's laying the foundation for the beautiful new life that He's going to be building in your life. Everything will be new. The possibilities are going to be endless. And He'll be with you every step of the way, showing His love, bringing His new mercies each new morning. Here's what I'm saying. When faith comes, it's from Him, and it's to His glory. There's no formula to it. If there were, you would blindly recite it and without truly feeling the words in your heart. But God doesn't want a routine. He wants a relationship. So stop trying to come up with a surefire way to always get the things you want, the five steps that are sure to get God to answer you. Forget about that and come into the presence of God as His child and just pour your heart out to Him. Be humble. Admit to Him that you don't really know what to ask for or how to say it. Be honest with Him. Ask Him to lead you to pray for the right things, how to have a heart like His. Tell Him that your faith is not as strong as it should be and ask for His help with this. When you lack the faith, ask God for His mercy. When you humble yourself before God, He's the one who will lift you up. Just be honest with Him. Ask in simplicity, then wait for Him. Have the heart of a child when you pray. Asking Father for something that's important to you. I heard the story of a family of a mother and six daughters. This mother was Mrs. Fisher, and she had these six young daughters, but then she was pregnant and she was going to have one more. When she delivered the seventh daughter, it was a daughter also, when she delivered that baby, she was so happy. But then a couple of weeks later, she noticed that the baby really wasn't maturing any. The baby didn't lift any arm or kick the legs or anything. The baby didn't look anywhere with the eyes or even try to open the eyes. The baby just laid there perfectly still, didn't move any muscles. The baby was alive, but something was really wrong. After a few weeks, the mother had the doctors check her, and the doctors did two weeks' worth of tests and did all kinds of brain tests as well on the tiny little baby. And they came up with a, a diagnosis, and it was a very grim diagnosis. The baby 
they found out had what is called congenital hydrocephalus. And that was a thing that didn't have a cure. There was no way to cure congenital hydrocephalus. And what it was, was it surrounded the brain with water, great pressure on the water from the water and the head would grow to large size. The baby would be very, very mentally retarded as a result. Well, the mother didn't know what to think, but as the child grew, get closer to 10 months, the child still couldn't do anything. The mother would lay the child down in the little uh, bassinet, the little bed for the baby, and she'd come back an hour later, and the baby was still perfectly in the same position, hadn't moved at all. The head had become so large that it was almost twice the size of a regular head for a baby at 10 months old. And they didn't know what to do. The eyes were so far buried back in the head because the head had swollen so much that the baby couldn't even open the eyes, even if it knew how to. And it just couldn't even hardly see where the eyes were. Well, the oldest sister, who was now 12 years old, her name was Helen. And Helen looked at that little baby, her little youngest sister. She had five other sisters. And now this was the sixth other sister. And Helen was the oldest sister at 12 years old. And she didn't know what to do, but she was mature enough. She knew that God could do anything. And she said, well, God, I give my little sister to you. Please fix her somehow. Helen didn't let fear stop her. When fear tried to get her attention and paralyze Helen, little Helen, that 12-year-old little girl, chose faith instead. God, please fix my little sister. Well, during that time, there was an evangelist who came to town and who was meeting every day of the week for several months in this big auditorium. It was a famous evangelist that was always teaching God's Word and always talking about the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And people that went there were being healed of diseases and they were getting the Word of God taught and they were feeling the hope that comes from God's Word. And so many, many people were coming. Mrs. Fisher, the mother of the seven little daughters, decided that she would go to these meetings. The problem is that she couldn't get off work until a certain time. But Helen, the 12-year-old daughter, got off of school at about 3 o'clock. The meeting and the evangelism meeting wasn't until 7 o'clock. So she asked Helen, the little 12-year-old girl, if she would go to this place and stand in line at the front of the door as soon as she got out of school at 3.30. And she would stand in line for three to three and a half hours until her mom could get there and the mom would bring the new little baby, whose name was Billy. She was the one with the big head and the congenital hydrocephalus. And her mom would cover over the baby's face with a blanket so that no one would get grossed out when they saw the huge head on the baby. She didn't want to freak anybody out, so she covered that over. And when she went in, she saw her little daughter, the 12-year-old Helen, waving from a seat way up front. 
Helen could only save one seat because you see, there were many, many people trying to get into this auditorium that seated thousands of people. And it would fill up very, very quickly. As soon as the doors opened, little Helen had to run up there to get one chair. And then she would sit in that chair for three hours until her mother came. All the other seats in the whole place were filled up. And thousands of people, two to 3,000, were waiting on the outside because they could not get in because there was no more room to come in and see these things that God was doing inside of here. So little Helen, the 12-year-old, sat in that chair for three hours. But she could only save one seat because she was only one person. And she sat in that seat for three hours. And then when her mom came with her little sister, little Billy, she let her mom sit in the chair. And Helen, the 12-year-old, after sitting there for three hours, stood for three more hours without a seat. She just stood. And each night, Mrs. Fisher would listen to the message. She would listen to about what God was doing in other people's lives, what His Word said. She would see miracles. and Faith began building up in Mrs. Fisher's life. She wanted God to do something to heal her seventh little daughter. So bad she wanted God to do something. She came for weeks and she kept coming for months. And after 10 months, she said, God, I just need to see something. God, please do something. The little 12-year-old was still praying. Something interesting happened after that. She came into the room again to lay the baby down who was now 10 months old. She laid it down on, his, on her back. And then a couple of hours later, she came in and she saw that the baby was on her stomach. And she goes, well, that's strange. I thought I put the baby on the back, but now she's on her stomach. And we all know that this baby doesn't move. She doesn't move her eyes, doesn't move her arms, her legs, nothing. Other people were trying to tell her to give the baby away to a medical facility, an institution that could take care of her. Mrs. Fisher wouldn't have anything of that. She had raised six daughters already. She wasn't going to give away this seventh daughter. She loved her daughters too much. Whatever the, whatever the situation would be, Mrs. Fisher would love that little girl that God had given her. In fact, God had given her girl to the right mother because here was a mother who loved her children, who would stay with that child no matter what. No matter how bad the situation got, she would love that child. She was a mother who had motherly love for that little child. So... Mrs. Fisher saw that the baby might have moved. She said, well, I don't know. I don't remember this, but I think I laid her on her back. So she said, well, I know what I'll do. I'll turn her over on her back again, and then I'll go away for a while. She went away for an hour, hour and a half. When she came back, the baby again was on the stomach. And Mrs. Fisher said, something's going on here. I don't know what's going on, but she made an appointment with the brain specialist that had been treating the little girl, Billy, the little baby. And she said, something's changing. I'm not sure, but she's starting to move on her own. The brain surgeon looked. And before, this, before as they looked, they measured the head of the little baby because it had been twice the size as before. But they noticed in their measurements that it seems like it had gone down in size just a little bit. So he said, well, look, 
you bring her in next week. We're going to do this surgery on her. And we'll see what's happening, see what we can do to help maybe to get some of that water off. And in the meantime, they just drain some of that water off, off of the brain and everything to reduce the pain and the discomfort. So then the day of the surgery, Mrs. Fisher brought little Billy, the baby, back in to the neurosurgeon, to the brain surgeon. And before the surgery, they cleaned the baby up. They measured the head again. They measured it again. They said, there's something strange here. The head is still shrinking down. We don't know what's going on, but we're not going to do the surgery today. I want to think about this a little more. You bring her back in in two weeks, and then we'll do the surgery. Two weeks later, Mrs. Fisher showed up again, and they took the baby. They did the pre-surgery measurement of the head and get the baby all ready, and they were amazed. The head was shrinking down greatly. You could start to see the eyes start to open on this little child. And Mrs. Fisher was so excited that the prayed surgeon told her, he said, look, I don't know what to think of this. This is like a miracle or something. He said, I've never seen anything like this. Usually this doesn't happen with congenital hydrocephalus. This doesn't happen. I'm not sure what to think. Look, you take the child. We'll schedule a surgery two months out, and we'll see what happens. Mrs. Fisher took little Billy home. Over the few weeks, over that two months, little Billy started moving around. The head shrunk almost down to completely normal now. The eyes started looking normal. And one day, when Mrs. Fisher walked in the room, the baby turned its head looked up at the mother, opened its eyes, and smiled. Mrs. Fisher was amazed. That was a miracle. It was a total miracle. She took the little child back to the doctors who measured the head, and now it was completely normal. Everything was completely normal. There was no mental retardation at all. The little child was just growing, maturing, as if nothing ever happened as if it was just a normal baby all that time. They said, this is amazing. This is a total miracle. I'm amazed we've seen a miracle here. Mrs. Fisher took little Billy back home. Over time, little Billy grew up to be another beautiful young daughter for Mrs. Fisher. Amazing what God had done. And then that 12-year-old sister, Helen, who had prayed for little Billy every day, just asking God to fix her. She chose faith and asked God to fix the problem. That 12-year-old sister, the oldest sister, and that new young sister, little Billy, became best friends. And she was fine the rest of her life. All because a little 12-year-old, instead of seeing fear, chose faith in God instead. You see, God sometimes works right away and answers those prayers quickly. At other times, He works gradually, taking the time to fix other things along the way as well. But He's always hearing your prayers, and He loves you greatly. Everything He does for you is for your very best. You don't need to be anxious or be worried. He wants your heart to be at peace resting in His love. Isaiah 26, verse 3 says, You will keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon you, 
because he trusts in you. And his eyes are always on the one who rests in him, on the one who leaves his fear behind and chooses faith. Amen. Why don't you give your life to God right now? If you call out to him, he'll hear that cry. And he'll answer you. He'll rescue you from that darkness and he'll shine his light on your heart. You'll be given newness of life. He'll change you into a new person. He'll throw all that bad history away. You'll be given completely new life, a new start. And he'll give you everlasting life in heaven. That's guaranteed by God himself. We want to give you an opportunity to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Lord and to receive God's peace in your life. You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from judgment. You can pray something like this. Just repeat after me. Say, God, I do want to know you and have real peace in life. I believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Please forgive all my sins. I give my life to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, God heard you. He's already started working in your life. A seed's been planted deep down in your heart. Over time, you're going to begin to see the wonderful changes that He's making. Get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about Him and His Word. And talk to God every day in prayer. He's going to do wonderful things in your life.